3: With deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gum drop lips, cotton candy thighs, you're my candy!
0: Welcome everyone to Podcast 49. It's November of 2018 and fall is in full swing. In some places, it's already snowing. So,
2: tonight, we bring you a tiny bit of warmth to the show. Frank, what do we have? We have the heat of the desert in our top seven interesting characters of Death Valley. And we have
0: interviews with eyewitnesses of the Loch
2: Ness Monster. What's more heartwarming than that? Then we have the meaning of Thanksgiving from the Peanuts characters, and another terrifying tale from H.P. Lovecraft.
0: And some other stuff, of course. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Let's get started.
3: Must come down, spinning wheel, got to go round, talking about your troubles, it's a crying sin, ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel spin, you got no money, you got no home, spinning wheel, all alone, talking about your troubles and you never learn. Ride a Painted Pony, let the spinning wheel turn. Did you find your directing sign on the straight and narrow highway? Would you mind? spinning wheel spinning true drop all your troubles by the riverside catch a painted pony on the spinning wheel ride Catch a Painted Pony, Catch a Painted Pony and let it ride.
4: The monument lies partly in Nevada, but mostly in California, and contains nearly 3,000 square miles. Of this area, about 550 square miles are below the level of the sea. It was created a national monument in 1933 and enlarged to its present size in 1937. From the Averwats Mountains which form the southern barrier, unique 140 mile long depression or fault which varies from four to 16 miles in width. Now let us visit this fascinating valley of color and sunshine created eons ago and changed but little with the passing of time. Old Borax Bill was a tough old pill, an old case hardened sinner, who went his ways in the early days, an old time long line Skinner. He knew more schemes for the jerk line teams, no Skinner could stay with him. He cussed by road and he swore by note to music, rhyme, and rhythm. He drove more span than any man, so far, of was his leaders. They was out of sight and it took till night to get back to his wheelers. Oh, folks laugh at his epitaph, here lies, it's a full sinner Who broke all rules for handling mules, old Borax Bill a Skinner He gave mules hell but he fed em, well he knew just what to give em He'd haul more load on a sandy road than any man a livin' Old Bill was rough but he knew his stuff when a lazy mule went kickin' On desert stones he left his bones, and the bussard's hand could pickin, His voice would ring as the mules would swing up the hill road shapin'. And when that band bent to the sand, their bellies would be scraping But buried deep in the bygone times, the long line days are winging And the cadent note of leaders' chimes, no more we'll hear a ringin'. Now you all have heard of a Borax Smith, the twenty-mule team wonder played his game and he came to fame with borax as his plunder now when it comes to long line teams and deserts full of borax of all the borax smith had seen bill blew more through his thorax for borax bill knew every hill where borax lay hiding and they say that every moonlight night his ghost goes borax riding it may be hot beneath the spot where borax bill is laying but it's ten to one that son of a gun a borax harp is playing now oh, such is fate, one evening late, old Bill he took some booze on He lost his mind and he got behind a mule with brand new shoes on With all his might and a careful sight, that beast played rat-tat-tat on That part of Bill's anatomy that never more he sat on they found Bill dead right on the spot, all folded up in glory. And that was the end of Borax Bill, and so thus ends the story. Now folks may laugh at his epitaph of Borax Bill the Skinner, but he lived and died as was his pride, a rough and tough old sinner.
2: Death Valley can be hot, dry, and dangerous, and like its name suggests, it can kill you. But still, people have been drawn to the place. At first, I guess, only because of the wealth they can wrestle out of the earth. But there are many who came and fell in love with the place, with its stark beauty and its weirdness, and I guess its solitude. And there were some that came and called the place home. And to call Death Valley home, you have to be some kind of a character. And Death Valley has attracted more than its share of characters. Tonight, we're going to celebrate the people who lived in and around that desert oddity with our top seven characters of Death Valley. And James, I think you have number seven.
0: Number seven is uh, Pete Argerberry. And uh, Pete, he was born in 1874 to a Basque family in France. So how did he end up in Death Valley? Because yeah, that's like about it. You like. that's crazy. Everybody loves France and nobody likes Death Valley to live there anyways. Everybody likes it because it's beautiful. But to end up in from France to, to, uh, to Death Valley is quite a leap. How did he get there? But anyways, he read stories of you know the 49ers and the prospectors in california and he begged his father from when he was a little kid to let him go and finally when he was 16 finally i guess (laughs) when he was 16 his father let him go and he, he got here and he made his way uh to of all places death valley well in 1905 he tried to cross death valley and he almost died and he was uh basically on the ground dying and somebody found him and and nursed him back to health with a month within a month of that he had he met shorty harris they decided to prospect together and shorty wanted to go to a party in ballard <laughs> for part, in ballard for fourth of july <laughs> the fourth of july celebration and on the way they were running their they were running their their mules and uh shorty got a little ahead because he was more excited to go to the party than than pete and pete saw a little little ledge thought that it looked interesting stopped it in in, uh, his first whack and found gold and so they found this uh, prospecting area and uh, you know what's the number one rule of of prospecting be like you don't tell anybody that you found anything so of course well, Pete, he, he kept that rule, but Shorty got drunk and he did not keep that rule. <laughs> so they went to town, went to the party, came back and staked all their claim out. But Shorty told them, told people about it, and then soon enough, three hundred people showed up and they were trying to, you know, hedge in on their on their their claim. And um, what ended up happening was uh, Pete, through his own diligence uh you know had to either persuade or or force people off the off the claim and finally he, he he took his little claim uh and harris and him had their claim and uh and then he started they started prospecting and literally by three months in or or six months in harris had sold his portion of it and moved on and pete uh actually stayed there for 40 years and and mine that claim and uh and that's that's one of the things that we're talking about characters well he's more of a slow and steady guy he's not really a character he just has a lot of character (laughs) so we're gonna include him on this one and uh but yeah so he went 40 years and uh the gold was good enough to where at the beginning it was it, it was uh considered 500 dollars a ton worth gold because it was it's, wow, as really pure good. yeah it was really good so they found some and then he just found a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a lot of hard work and a lot of diligence and he stayed there for his whole life and, and uh, made his living there. and made his living like he was basically the the working man's <laughs> gold miner <laughs> it's a desolate area out <laughs> yeah. there
2: it's in the panamans yeah. on the west side of death valley and you know there's some beautiful views from up there but it gets cold and it gets hot it gets hot and it's you know it's not like it's full of wildflowers in, but, but in, uh, you...
0: anyways that that's the first one he he lived his life and he was he was truly what we would say a working man's gold miner he
2: he mined his whole life and made enough to subsist the subsistence miner <laughs> very good okay now we go to number six and this kind of a man of mystery there are so many stories about him And the problem is that the stories are all different. It's kind of like, there's enough stories about contemporaries to know that he really exists, but otherwise you think he might be a myth. And these are the stories about Jacob Breifogel and his lost mine. And he set off a wave of treasure hunting that though it didn't lead to anyone actually finding his gold mine or his gold strike, it did lead to the discovery of a lot of other strikes. I can't even find a record about where Bray came from or, you know, how he got to Death Valley. But one thing that's for certain, that in the 1860s, he was in the valley. And according, there's one story that came from a person who knew a person who Bray told this story to. And it was in 1862, uh, Jacob came with two other guys. There was a guy named O'Bannon and McLeod, and they were prospecting up in the Panaman Mountains. And they were camping one night, and they were attacked by Indians. And Jacob escaped, but the other two guys were killed. And fogel was later found 250 miles to the north, near Baxter Springs, Nevada. And he was ragged, and he was bleeding out of his head, but in his pockets was gold ore, chocolate quartz with high-grade uh, gold in it. And he was taken to the mining camp of Austin, where he's nursed back to health, and but not quite mental health and he could recall the indian attack and wandering across death valley at one point he said he found a spring and he took off his shoes and put water in him so he would have some water he fell off a cliff but for the life of him he couldn't remember where he picked up that ore but he was willing to go out and look for it (laughs) so when they got him back to some respectable health the people out of austin they had an expedition and they went down into death valley well, they found that he wasn't. He was even worse than they thought, because as it got further and further down to the, the the floor of Death Valley, his mind got foggier and foggier. Oh, wow. and he could never quite figure out where he had been. And his mind got slow too. Uh, I don't and, know that anybody and,
0: could 250 miles and you're walking by foot to be.
2: Well, yes. How yeah, how could he really? Yeah. Then there's another story where Bray Fogel left from Austin to guide a party from Yuma. And when he returned to Austin, same thing. He was delirious, but he was found with gold in his pocket. there's another version that states that Bray Fogle was prospecting, but found gold in the Funeral Mountains. And they carried samples to this Indian settlement in Ash Meadows, and there he was attacked, and afterwards he stumbled into Austin with the gold. And there's a lot of other versions. But where all the stories seem to be to agree upon is that Bray Fogel never could find his mind. <laughs> And lots of parties would out go out with them, and they'd go looking. And at one point, one of them was a very frustrated and said, you even show us a mine or I'm going to fill you full of lead. And one of Bray Fogle's friends happened to be there and saved his life. But I'm sure that that was not the only time that he caused anger by this. And then Bray Fogle would actually go out by himself and try to find the mine. And so people would see him wandering around Death Valley, all different places, mostly in the Panamints, but other places too. And some people started be thinking, a "Great ghost story!" <laughs> yes, he's still wandering it. today. Yeah. Well, some people started thinking, "Hey, he really knows where this gold mine is. He's just he just got delirious, and when he found people." you know, all the bags out, they know I have gold. So he had to pretend he couldn't find it. And he's out there mining it in secret. So they would follow him and try to see. And even if not, maybe he doesn't know, but maybe he'll find it and I'll be there. Yeah. And this one guy named Indian George used to follow him a lot. He was an old character himself out of Death Valley. and. He's told other people that he'd follow him. And suddenly, like, Bray Fogle would, like, go behind a rock or go around a bush. And he'd get over there, and he's gone. He could never f- track him to anything. It was like Bray Fogle knew. Oh, he, 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 might, he could have known then, because that, that,
0: like, shows, like, he knows what's going on. Well,
2: exactly. <laughs> so, you know, eventually, hundreds of people started looking for his mind. And the search, of course, was all over the place because no one knew exactly what it was. 250-mile
0: radius. <laughs> Shorty
2: Harris claimed that one of this this Indian woman had a map that Bray Fogel had made for her, and it led someplace, but no one really knew. And so, because so many prospectors were looking for it, at one point, prospecting at De- Death Valley was called Bray fogle Oh. <laughs> so. Hilarious. Anyway, it never did lead to ever finding the mine. So was he an amnesiac, or was he a cunning gold hoarder? I, nobody will ever know, but he's definitely a character of Death Valley. He definitely is. And now we go to number five.
0: Number five is Seldom Seen Slim. <laughs> that is a great name. All right, if we just had that name to go off
2: of. <laughs> That's enough. And, right his, there. and his gravestone, which we'll talk about oh. later. but Just
0: his name and his gravestone. I think uh, he would definitely fit into the category. All right, like, top seven. But uh, do tell. So his real name was Charles Ferg, and he arrived in Ballarat in about 1916. They can't tell. Okay. And uh, and he was about the age of 35. 1917 is when the the stagecoach route and the post office closed, and then essentially soon after that it became a ghost town so he got in right in before the town basically got deserted the population ebbed and flowed but it was always very small and with most of the buildings uh unoccupied uh, yeah (laughs) unoccupied and there was a long period of time when he actually was the only person that was there so uh definitely a loner (laughs) to say the least um Throughout his time, he lived almost in every abandoned building there. (laughs) That was his claim. (laughs) Uh, And then a fire came through at one point and burned at the particular building he was living in and and most of the stuff. And so he had to rough it for a while and then finally got himself a trailer. And I think when he got a trailer, uh, that is when he, you know, people... He started becoming known and it was kind of a... They had like an expose in a couple of magazines, uh, just like, you know how they have the historical magazines. They've always had them. Even in the thirties or the twenties, they had stuff that kind of talked about, you know, not the good old days, but yesteryear, you know, Hey, 15 years ago, what about that gold rush? You know, (laughs) you know, which we wouldn't have, but we would have, Hey, what about the Carter years or something like that? So they had a thing on prospecting and then they, they ran him down and, uh, People started coming, and and so they people would would go out and talk to him, and they would always ask him questions. And one of the things he, they would ask him was, uh, "Are you lonely?" And and his answer, which actually became his epitaph, <laughs> so epitaph so. on his gravestone was, Lo- uh, "Me lonely? Hell no." I'm half coyote and half wild burrow. <laughs> <That, laughs> I don't know how that, that was, means that anything. Was, so. That was his catchphrase, <laughs> and apparently he said a lot. So they, they, it's on his headstone. Nice. <laughs> uh, along with you know his real name, and then and then is it in Ballarat? Is that his head? yeah, it's in it's in uh, Ballarat, and there's a uh, there's a fence around it. You can go see.
2: And and um, how did he get his name, Seldom Sleen Slim? So it was a, a thing
0: where, where, um, it was kind of his own, you know, it was, you know, have you seen, uh, Slim and, and, and people would say seldomly or whatever. And then, <laughs> so it started coming up and, then and So, so was, actually at first he wasn't in a lot.
2: He was seldom seen there. Yeah, Right. And it's, you know, I think. Before he stayed there forever. In
0: a, um, in one of those articles, you know, they just had it. And so everybody called him that, uh, you know, to live there, there was no water. the 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 well had dried up, so he had to drive several miles to get water, and he would just come with jugs. No, no electricity, and he would have, uh, he would drive 30 miles to Trona to get supplies. And he said that he had a haircut. He would tell visitors that he had a haircut in a bath once a year in, in, in Trona. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it sounds good. So, another character thing. Um, uh, one of the cool things is the U.S. Department of the Interior named one of the the um, Panamint Mountains after him as Slim's Peak.
2: Oh, that's so, cool.
0: So he's, you can go. You can go today to Slim's Peak and <laughs> pay homage to to Slim. Uh, and uh, he lived alone, and he liked living alone. But he did like uh, visitors because the people would come and he just to, to say that to say that he was well known is is kind of an understatement because when he died they they televised his funeral all over the country
2: that is weird and,
0: and I, when they say televised it was like on the news or what you know yeah that kind of thing but people knew because it was kind of the last prospect it's like when the last civil war died you know and, and bride what, dies or something what year
2: did he die he died in
0: 1968 so it was TV um, was full bore. So really,
2: I mean, like, actually, probably the time he was there and nobody was there was, uh, you know, in the fifties and in sixties.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like nobody was there. Yeah, out there. nobody then, would have yeah, been there then. And so he he held out a long time. And he in like, the sixties he definitely he, would be the he last prospect. He would go and, uh, and people would come, and he would uh, walk the ruins with them and tell them stories and tell them what this was for and that was for and kind of give them the idea of where the, all the mines were. And so yeah, it was cool. like crazy. It was crazy, well, you know, cool. and, and I,
2: I bet. Why some of these guys became famous is cause when they start doing Death Valley Days, the radio show, yeah. and then Death Valley Days, the TV show, they probably had episodes with seldom seen Slim, and I know they had uh, Death Valley Scotty at one point, and and. Uh, well, definitely. I mean, they could have just went and talked to the guy. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so. or
0: just like they do in every Hollywood thing, just make up some kind of seldom seen Slim writes itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, right now,
2: obviously. Uh, the stories of Death Valley are not like you know common it, coin it but back funny. then
0: people don't understand that how famous I mean they have Death Valley days like it's a huge thing, like yeah. a radio program and you would a hit TV show and you wouldn't think I mean if you've been there it's certainly beautiful and captivating it's like one of those things it's hard to explain like Joshua Tree or something if you just saw Joshua Tree like if yeah. you see Joshua Trees on the way to like uh, uh, you know Hesperia or something it's different, like yeah, you're like actual oh, park. okay, yeah. you know oh those are interesting or whatever. But the park is weird. It's got like its yeah. own ambiance.
3: Super and the cool. rocks, of course.
0: It's like my favorite, one of my favorite parks, if not my favorite place. Uh, but anyways, tangent. But but uh, yeah, interesting. And uh, yeah, this guy was the last of the last of the last, and and really, yeah, he was the last of the prospectors. Sixty-eight, well, certainly by sixty-eight,
2: because then you couldn't. Pro- First of all you could prospect at first when it was a national monument and then and then some stuff was outside of the monument like ballarat and that that end of the panamint mountains which is in the west of death valley is was not in the monument at the time so you could prospect out there but eventually you know by 68 you can't be digging for gold
0: (laughs) out there you think about that that's 120 years later than 1949 i mean 1849 yeah that's yeah 1849
2: That's crazy. Well, that's a great character, James. I'm loving him. Just his name alone, as you said. Well, now, I'm going to have a doubleheader right now, because I'm going to do both four and three. And we're going to start with number four. And this is Alkali Bill. He's kind of the Mr. Toad of the Death Valley area. And by Mr. Toad, I mean he had a wild ride going on there. His real name was William Brong.
0: Start with his real name.
2: Yeah. His real name was William Bron. And I've never read anything that told about where he originally came or how he came out into the desert. But in the early 1900s, he started a transportation business there. and It was between the two gold towns of Goldfield and Rhyolite, which is the town that sprung up <laughs> from the other Shorty Vera's uh, claim out in uh, Bullfrog. But anyway, there had been a stage traffic between the two towns, and it was about 60 miles apart and that would cost $18 a piece. But Bill, he had a, a steam-powered tour car brought out by wagon and he started doing a service and it was 25 ducks a trip between the two cities because it was faster and the car was nicer. And I don't know if there was competition already or whether he was the first and it started up, but eventually he had competition with other cars so he had to distinguish himself. So he knew he had to be faster. So he sped up his service and he used to make the trip in record time, like three hours and 40 minutes. And he would speed along on the wagon trails and you know, about 45 miles an hour. But in order to keep that schedule, he'd often stray off the path and go craning off the desert on a shortcut and leaving a trail of dust. And he would have his leather cap on and his goggles and probably the people behind him uh, were wearing the terrified looks and uh, You know, every once in a while he'd hit a chuck hole and break an axle or something. But strapped to the side of his car were all kinds of spare parts. And of course he had an axle too. So he'd fix that up and then you'd keep going on. He had an ad in 1907 and it read, Go automobiling in Death Valley with Alkali Bill on the Death Valley Chug Line. Runs cars daily from the front of Borax Mills Railroad and Armagosa on on the Las Vegas and Tonopah and to Greenwater. Alkali Beal himself meets every train and whizzes you across the desert at 45 miles an hour by way of Death Valley and the famous Armagosa Canyon to Greenwater in less than three hours. Better ride ahead or wire your reservations if you have time. (laughs) As you can see, he expanded his business because, you know, he was going for all these different other things, not just between Goldfield and Rhyolite. And he also, which he doesn't talk about, he offered an all-day service in Death Valley for a hundred bucks, which was tons of money back then. Yeah. And in later years, rich he actually now. was part of a company that would manufacture autos just for the desert. So he made a lot of money on this, uh, if he can invest in that. Uh, on a side I, mean, note, I wonder
0: if he got just, I wonder if he got like they like a not a sponsor but you know how they always had athletes or whatever that 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 guy if you're a car guy you could have him as oh, a, as a spokesperson or whatever and then he got involved with it or and something and I'm not
2: sure he might have got other drivers to do other yeah, routes yeah. I mean eventually you know if you're building an uh, I don't know also if, if this uh business of manufacturing desert autos became a success either yeah, but he at, but, at least got into it Yeah. well and he had side trouble too I was just going to say that his wife knocked over a pipe in his offices in this the town of pioneer was out in the desert and it started this fire that burnt down the north half of the business district and it cost like sixty thousand worth of damage and you know he was responsible for it so that must have put a big dent if they could get away with it uh, you know
0: to get the money out of him yeah it's weird because i mean even if your house burns down you're not like really
2: responsible. Well, for, maybe he wasn't, and maybe he didn't yeah. have the pay, but I bet he, they didn't let him stay, oh, in, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. stay in that town <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Anyway, that's Alkali Bill. I wish I could have took his ride with yeah, him. That would have been awesome. So we have now, we go to number three, and that's Panam and Annie. And Annie was an independent woman, to say the least. She was a woman of determination and stubbornness, and she wasn't afraid of backbreaking work. She started out as Mary White. And she was the daughter of an army surgeon and an Iroquois uh, Indian mother. And she went on to be a prospector in Death Valley. And she could mine and spit and swear as much as any of her marital counterparts. And she was born in June 22nd of 1912. And it was in Washington, D.C., of all places. And she was always a handful from a kid on up. And when she was 12, she missed an airplane trip with her mother and her sister because she rode around the base on her motorcycle. And apparently that was too scandalous. So she had to stay home. And unfortunately, the mother and the daughter of that plane crashed and they died. Whoa. And that was very sad. But the message that she got from that tragedy was that she did not die because she was bad. <laughs> did she really get
0: that? Because I was going to make a joke. She really got no,
2: that? No. So I, I was... I. I was being punished and that's why i survived and she wanted to be a doctor and brought it up with her father and her father said no women can't be doctors so you know rather than become a nurse or something else she just dropped the whole thing and uh, in her early 20s she got married but her first child died and then she had trouble in the marriage and they had a second child but then they had a divorce and that child stayed with the father, and then she went on and became a truck driver for bootleggers where she'd drive from Canada hauling whiskey to Chicago. Then she started um, as a cook, and she started cooking at these dude ranches in Colorado. And then she got tuberculosis. And the doctor said, you know, you need to go to a drier climate. So she picked the driest climate possible and she moved to Death Valley. (laughs) And she thought she was going to be a cook there and she couldn't get any work. And in desperation she thought well maybe i could prospect and the miners were cool they were willing to like teach her things they saw she was a hard worker so they taught her um, you know how to timber the mines and how to um, you know muck it out get all the rubble and blast stuff and she worked her own mines there and uh, and in order to save some money she would use candles instead of kerosene lamps (laughs) and so anyway eventually I don't know if they ever cured her tuberculosis or not, but she felt really good as if
0: she was she, she could go yeah. on. Yeah.
2: So she moved back to Colorado, where I guess she thought she'd cook again. And when she was there, she met this cowboy named Bryant. And they had a happy marriage apparently, but it wasn't too long before he died and she was seven months pregnant. Mm. And she was, I guess, despondent and she decided to move back to Death Valley. And when she was there, she started up prospecting again, and her daughter was born there in 1938. She was a late prospector yeah. into Death Valley, yeah, yeah. and she started prospecting again. It's like a dirty habit. She started. Yeah, prospecting. yeah. She started prospecting. <laughs> Back to that prospecting. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know because she was such a hard worker, and, and she reminded. The miners of, and this is how she gets her name, by the way, because there's no Annie in her name, as no. you can see.
0: It's like she
2: reminded them of another one they used to call Panam Annie, like in the old days, like the 1860s or oh, 70s. Wow. And, and I wish we knew who that woman was, but that That's just lost. And they started calling her Panam Annie, so she just took the name on it. And she usually teamed up with other prospectors and formed some sort of a family kind of commune group. But she was unusual because there were other women prospectors, but they were usually the wife of another miner or something. She would get with all these men, and sometimes they're wives, and there'd be no romantic hookup with any of them. Because <laughs> yeah, it sounded like that when you said <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and they used to treat her daughter like... They were the uncles, and there was a lot of times no swearing, even though her and them both <laughs> swore like sailors. No, not in front of the kid. And they would share, you know, all the work usually, even the cooking. And they had a radio that would kind of put them up, you know, during World War uh, to uh, Well, no, I think it was World War One, or I'm not sure. 1970 World War. There, I don't know. I don't know when she got there, but anyway, they were looking, listening for world events from the Panamints and. Uh, but she would also cook like she was a cook. So yeah. she would cook. So her time was really good food. Yeah, yeah. And then all the time she would cook treats, whatever. Yeah. One time somebody sold them like 100 pounds of potatoes. So she made potato chips and stuff. And she did all the laundry. And I don't know if it was because she couldn't stand their stink. No, or it was yeah. just a courtesy. Like they're not going to want to do it. And I can ingratiate myself or whatever. Yeah. So she was the first woman prospector. To do what a lot of people were doing when they invented the automobile, is where they had a flatbed truck and they would put a tent like structure on the back. Mm. And it'd be like a camper and they'd live yeah. in that. Because they're up in the mountains and stuff, you can't yeah. build structures, all rock to sleep on. So her and her daughter would be in there and it'd get cold up there in the Panama Mountains. Oh, they would yeah. get a hot water bottle and all these blankets. And the kid, of course, would get kind of worried, like, what's going to happen to us? And she so, said, Don't worry, between God and me, we'll take care of you. <laughs> that was her thing. He's like, uh, Okay. I, don't know I trust either of you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, sometimes Annie would uh, have romantic relations. She would have a, sometimes a husband, yeah. sometimes somebody just was a live in. And, but they were always somebody that ate, slept, and sometimes died in the mines. <laughs> and that none of them last. She ended up having five more children after Doris. Oh, wow. Three of them died, mostly like childbirth or whatever. And then when Doris reached... <laughs> not from bad, like... Not from dropping on weathers. her head <laughs> or... Yeah, I know. Oh, my gosh. Not uh, from frostbite or... Well, I think there was Hi-Bithubia. at least one that died like uh, from a fall or something. But I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. anyway when when all of them reached child age and first doris when doris reached child uh, school age they would be sent off like she sent him off to her her dad's sister and then oh. she went to school and that until she got old enough to come back and then she did move in and help her she mom came out back. wow that's crazy i know it is crazy i'd be like peace out mom <laughs> i don't know how long she stayed <laughs> yeah. when she came back but and then the the last child which was a boy in 1947 when she was 37, she moved to Beatty, which is in Nevada, and so that the boy could go to school there. And during that time, she would mine around that area, and she was partners with uh, another uh, lady miner, Frederica Hessler, that was out there. So nice. And he loved the desert, and she loved the flora and fauna. All these characters did. All the people eventually. That's or why else they're they there. couldn't stand they could it. There, I yeah. mean, even, even the gold hunters, they yeah. wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah, it's not up north, which is, you know. No, it's not Beautiful. the gold
2: country yeah. where you could kind of live and maybe go to San Francisco. <laughs> you're out the <laughs> nothing. But, uh, you know, the, the sort of the rangers who were in the monument used to say that she knows this whole, you know, monument better than anyone else, and she knows all the flora and fauna. As she got older and her arthritis set in and her strength was failing, she couldn't really prospect so much, but she would still go up Titus Canyon just to see the view and hear the mountain talk she would say and she would say too that the desert is a sea it moves like waves in the ocean and uh, she would also call up the governor of Nevada with unsolicited advice telling him what and anybody else the mayor of the towns nice <laughs> as she got older eventually she got cancer and that was it was hard on her of course and to make ends meet, she would uh, sell homemade jewelry and souvenirs from the back of her station wagon. But she would still say to anybody, as soon as I get a good steak, I'm gonna go out into the hills and find me another strike. She died in 1979. Uh, well, maybe she is the last prospector. <laughs> yeah. Actually, she beat 68. She was independent to the last. And she would often say, Don't wait for a man to do something for you, or you'll wait for eternity. <laughs> right? So there's Annie, another great character. So I Death bet I heard some kids are still alive, man. <laughs> yeah, pro- yeah, must be. Anyway, James, we're getting up to the top side. What's number two in our characters? Well, number one must be spectacular because
0: <laughs> number two is uh, Death Valley Scotty. Nice. And, uh, he is super famous. If you've ever been to uh, Death Valley, because uh, there's some, some some stuff named after him. Uh, but we'll get into that later. So Scotty was born in Kentucky and spent his early years traveling with his family around the harness racing circuit. <laughs> oh my god! <gosh. laughs> like so, that's one whole career yeah, right there. Yeah, exactly. That's, right. So and that's up until age 11. And at age 11, he took off and met up with his brothers at a ranch uh near in uh, uh wells nevada which is another you oh, know, yeah, that's is a, way in the middle so, of nowhere. yeah and, and he's a you know working ranch doing that and then at the age of 16 he was such a good horse rider that he got picked up by the buffalo bill wild oh well. my gosh yeah and and he he was actually a stunt rider for 12 years oh. touring with the show and so he went to Europe and all over the place because oh, they, they, they did that. Uh, it was like, you know, a circus yeah. or something. So they traveled everywhere, and, and 12 years is a long time. So.
2: Yeah, that's a whole career.
0: So then he, he met his wife uh, in New York, and that effectively stopped his uh, his time with the show. Oh, he they quit then. Settled down, yeah. They moved to Cripple Creek, Colorado. And then uh, Scotty, for the first time, unsuccessfully tried. To actually mine, <laughs> first and last, and, and, and you'll know why I say this because that's when he actually tried to go out and prospect and mine, and he did not. Uh, he did not do well, and he didn't. He didn't find gold, and so what he ended up doing was trying to get back with the Buffalo Bill uh, Wild West Show, Well, they turned him down. So I don't know if he had. If he, I'm sure if yeah. he had misgivings or that kind of thing, but. Uh, Whatever happened, they didn't let him back in. So uh, he did the only thing he could do to survive. He conned a wealthy New Yorker into <laughs> investing into a phony gold mine. <laughs> <coughs> and this started a very uh, famous pattern, I might say. For two years, he corresponded with the benefactor, and he received $5,000 from, from New York. Uh, and... Uh, this was about 1905, so $5,000 a lot of money. Yeah, oh my gosh. In the end, Scott boarded a train to New York, pretending to have $12,000 in gold dust in a bag. And, and uh, by the time he reached his destination, the bag had been conveniently been stolen. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The papers actually picked up the story, and, and a wave of publicity came his way. Oh, no. And... Dude, he's like the Kardashians or something of, of old. This guy was an attention attention oh, publicity yeah. hound, man. And so, uh, and he obviously he was a con man because you don't, yeah. I mean, he was a good con man because he conned a lot of people. We'll talk about it. Yeah, financial but, but people should know better.
2: He, he was a good
0: con man and he looked like a prospector and he, he talked some money out of people. Um, so he did that. And uh, and then uh, that he got all the publicity and whatever. And, and that actually helped him con some more people into <laughs> oh. some more money. And he got $4,000 from the next group of patrons. <laughs> so that lasted him for a while. And uh, he continued the mind con uh, for, for quite some time. In 1905, Scotty got involved with E. Burden Gaylord. And this is the first big thing he had already been famous because of of, of his his uh you know his mind robbery, mob- his robbery. <laughs> yeah supposed robbery and so people knew his name he had been a wild Bill yeah show, show and band. then this is the first this is the thing that I can actually give him like this is an amazing thing he actually he he got together with a legitimate mine owner and they they struck a deal and the deal was hey I, I need you to uh' well, partner but I need you to uh, oh, get investments? No, he's no, he's going to advertise. He's like, I want you to advertise for the mine to get investments. But yeah, oh, but, okay. So, but then he's not going to just go ask people for money. He's going to advertise, and so Scotty decided to go big, and he naturally, like anybody would think, he set about breaking the cross country speed record for the train. <laughs> oh, that's yeah.
2: when he got in league with the the actual railroad, and yeah. they made that deal about going, uh, you know, they may, They knew it was fake too, and they said, we're going to pretend like you're the guy uh, uh, um, paying for the train, but it's us, and we're yeah. going to break that spring record, so we get into the papers, and Correct. you get to... <laughs> well, he
0: he did pay them, he paid them, he set it up, and he paid them... Oh, he actually like, paid them,
2: so that money came from the money Thousands of the
0: dollars, and everything was done legit. It's not. They didn't have special rides. They didn't have whatever. This was a, a cross country journey on regular lines. The only thing they did different is because he got the right away on everything.
2: I thought for some reason that the that the railroad was in league with them, but they weren't. They
0: they were in league with them because they wanted to break the record, but yeah. they didn't. So because they let they let him have right away on all the tracks, okay. which is a big deal. Yeah. but. That was a thing because they the Chicago Railway wanted to get wanted to be the fastest rail line. Okay. So it was in conjunction, but he paid some money and he set it up. But it was a logistic thing, and then he broke the speed record. He he broke it by thirteen hours. He's which like is a Lindbergh, like, you know? like a crazy. <laughs> he broke it by thirteen hours. He, he that's he, a lot. Yeah, because it went from like seventy three to forty four or something, or no, it, it, he he did it in forty four hours and fifty three minutes. And he had broke the previous record by thirteen hours, wow. which is which is a lot. And they said, the thing I read said that they he had did it completely legitimately, uh, rode the tracks, rode regular trains, no speed stuff on it. And the only thing is that they they let yeah, him have the, right, the runway, which, which is probably the thirteen which hours, which is a big deal. <laughs> but it's not it's not they they were saying that yeah that was not necessary. that wasn't the the because the majority the, of the time I mean obviously. If, if something broke down or whatever and you know you're waiting thirteen hours then yeah you you'd lose. But everything had to go right, but it wasn't like they yeah, just well con their way through well it. That's he, true. If they wanted have
2: a, if they wanted <laughs> at a fast railroad, they could give that one the the uh, the right, right away yeah, yeah. every time. So oh.
0: So he legitimately he legitimately broke the record and that's it's cool. And it stood for like ten years or something. Wow. So uh, anyways that's the one thing I I always have to give him. That's <laughs> a legitimate thing. It was a legitimate advertisement. Yeah, it wasn't a con. He got it and and uh, and and he did that. Um, after that, uh, Scott could not stay legitimate for for too long. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that made him more famous. I bet investors yeah. poured in there.
0: others he went back to the old mining scam and, <laughs> and scamming more people out of money. And even even stealing ore out of other people's minds oh. and selling it. Oh, oh So, I mean, this guy was not... <laughs> he's a crook. <laughs> he's, you know, he was, he, he's, he's definitely uh, the debonair crook like Carrie uh, <laughs> like Owens in, in, in uh, you know, Psych. Yeah. <laughs> but he's still stealing stuff. Yeah. But he was likable. It's crazy. And the reason we know he was likable, because one of his investors at the time that he swindled money out of, I might add, (laughs) was one Mr. Albert Johnson. (laughs) He was an insurance man from Chicago who got got involved financially with with Scotty. And Johnson started to suspect something was fishy about the operation and decided he had sent people already. And there was like a weird, you know, like some, you know, oh, something can't go. We can't do this. And they, he would have all these tricks to evade people. Uh, and, and one of them famously was called the, the, uh, the battle of Wingate Pass. And, and he had a bunch of investors come down and they were going to go see the mine. And he had somebody pick hold them up and they were supposed <laughs> to shoot his mule to like frighten him. He ended up shooting his brother. Oh almost no. Almost killing not his brother. And, and. Scotty goes. Wait, you're shooting my man or whatever. So the jig was up, man, because it was his brother. <laughs> yes, right. You know, he's he's a crook, but he's, not, he's his brother still. So then they actually sued him oh. and uh, and you know took him to, to court and uh, and what ended up happening was in about 1912 uh, he had been taken to court by a number of parties. And he got off on a technicality, but he was made to confess. And he confessed to the grand jury that the hole in Death Valley was a myth. That's so he, he had said. no mind. So that he had to so then then everybody knew it in the country. It was a big story. So he couldn't, even but if he I wanted that to. I
2: some people thought he got away with it and he really did have a mind.
0: No, 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 because he was, he. this guy was a braggart among braggarts. This is the big deal. And then we'll, you know, we'll touch on it later. But he, he was always a talker and then you know i mean back then it's not the internet so people still didn't know oh yeah you know? and, and
2: what didn't they arrest him for that while he was about to do a play yeah about so his own I'm life? so yeah so he
0: did he in seattle of all places they had like a scotty of death valley play and he started started it <laughs> and it was supposed to go to san francisco and he got arrested the the when he walked out <laughs> of the play thing and that's how that's how they got it um but anyways, this Johnson guy was one of the people that he had he had uh, duped. He had duped, and when Johnson showed up to Death Valley, he was sickly too, and he found that the Death Valley air did him well, like Palm Springs or something. Yeah, for, you know, so he started coming back there and slowly but surely he made he paid visits to old Scotty and actually befriended him. And he befriended him so much that he
2: started paying him a pension. <laughs> <laughs> like $30 a month so the guy would... He must have been very so likable. Like, I'm telling I, you... I heard that he would take him on camping trips crazy. and all, all kinds of outings out there in the Yeah, desert. after he was like, hey, it's like... It's, <laughs> hey,
0: it was only business. <laughs> now we can be friends. I mean, if that adage ever was true, it yeah. was between these two guys. And the guy must have not cared. Uh, and that was, you know, in like 1917 or something. And they would come back, and he would visit often because he was a sick guy. And and they became actually really good friends. And he 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 not only paid the thirty dollars a month for him, he he started paying his uh, the uh, Scotty got divorced and he started paying his wife a pension to oh, the Johnson guy. Oh, oh wow! So well, got, that's good for his wife. Yeah, they got his Johnson. He his wife actually ended up after the so she was pay, he was paying her like one hundred and fifty dollars a month, and then the stock market crashed and he had to go to fifty, and then she she sued Johnson. And he's like just giving her money for nothing because <laughs> the guy just is enamored with. With Scotty, Scotty's wife sues Johnson because he said, "Well, first of all, he sues. She sues Scotty, and they find out that he really, because she thinks even oh, that she thinks he's got, thinks that he's got, got a some gold kind of somewhere, some kind of something. She sues him for thousand dollars. Oh, well, that probably was the nail in the coffin. And then because so she can't, and then so they find out he's got nothing. So then she sues the guy that's been giving her money, Johnson. and he's got no legal obligation. They're just like, you're a nice guy, I guess. I don't know why you're doing this, and." he so she he gets thrown out and he actually increased her money to 75 bucks <laughs> <'Cause laughs> even after <you> know, she <laughs> lost. cuz he kind of felt bad for her <laughs> and and they actually they had one child and he helped them get to military school and all kinds of stuff wow. and like like because goodness, goodness, <laughs> yeah, Scotty was a lousy dad <laughs> yeah, yeah scotty's kid would have been nothing but uh, yeah. johnson was like Amen. Hey, man <laughs> you know that so that was very cool so johnson started taking care of him after he got swindled it's, it's it's a crazy story i mean that's a great that should be a hollywood movie because it's yeah. awesome maybe it was i yeah. don't know but uh, you know so anyways he he finally uh johnson that is uh liked it so much that he started uh, he's decided he was going to build a big house and in 1927 he started construction on a big villa out there and uh, had a big ranch and everything, and and he actually made quarters for for Scotty to live there and <laughs> and have his own little place, like with mule stables and all, wow. like all kinds of things. Like he had a little like ranch hero, and like he had the big villa, whatever. And uh, and it never got completed because the stock market crashed. Oh, wow. But Scotty, being who he was, would brag to everybody that he was building a castle. Up on the <laughs> <hill>. <laughs> And so the name Scotty's Castle was born. And that's Scotty's Castle. It's not Scotty's Castle. It's neither a castle
2: nor is it Scotty's. And the weird thing is I heard too, when I went up to Scotty's Castle and they talk about it, how Johnson used to just keep his mouth shut and kind of promote it that it was Scotty's Castle as a joke. He
0: would say Johnson just must have just loved it. that was his thing. He loved trouble and he wasn't a troublemaker. I bet Johnson's wife hated (laughs) Scotty. You gotta be it's one of those things you gotta be who you are and, and so I, I know people like this they're 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 the accountant they're the person that keeps it together that was probably Johnson and but he loved <laughs> he, he <laughs> loved that there, live he, he loved that there was people that could do this and, and Scotty said all the stuff that he had minds he had all this kind of crazy stuff and, uh, yeah. and, and uh, Then Johnson eventually was that in, came back to bite him in the back. Oh, yeah. I remember. <laughs> that was before, but,
2: yeah, it bit him. No, a- the, no, I think that was after when the IRS came after Scotty. Well, the IRS came after him, but also the debtors sued him because they, oh, yeah. they, they
0: owed him all his money, and they he defrauded <laughs> him, and he said that Johnson
2: was in court, and he had to say, he has nothing, I pay him, he has no, no mind, never did. <laughs> and so even Johnson, because he's got whatever, he probably if he loves that, he probably loved that, too, because he's like, I'm
0: not really liable for <laughs> anything,
2: what do I <laughs> and people still thought that he was lying, and he actually had a mine somewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Johnson eventually died, oh. and he gave the the castle the, the <laughs> to a church group. But the one stipulation was Scotty could live out his days on, <laughs> <laughs> on the property. So then it was like you know then uh, of course it wasn't his but I guarantee we told everybody he owned, <laughs> they owned everything he was telling that guy you know and uh, so he he lived there until his death in 1954 and there's a side note our uncle Neil actually went to Death Valley when he was young and met Scotty the yeah. Scotty himself so that is
2: so cool so
0: that's a that's a, uh, you know a legend of of his time anyways he got that's like meeting you know, whoever, like some kind of sports hero or something, you know, if you're into sports. It's so weird cool. so so, yeah. that he became that way. Yeah, some random that crazy so thing. Cool. But, yeah, so he's definitely a character.
2: Well, that's pretty characters. tough to beat. <laughs> We're going to try to do it. I think the only... You know what? I was going to say this guy's more legitimate than Scotty, but I don't really know if he is because he was full of a lot of uh, half-truths and exaggerations himself. So our number one character... Of Death Valley is Shorty Harris and mainly because he ends up in every story yeah (laughs) he knew Scotty (laughs) he knew I mean Jim talked about him of course with Aga he's like the
0: violin in that movie yeah
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) the red violin yes he was partners with a bunch of people over the years over the prospectors and and he kept popping up in all kinds of stories about Death Valley but he only came uh, to Death Valley around the turn of the century, like in 1898, 99. But he soon made a name for himself. He was talkative, he was congenial, you know, and everybody started knowing him, old timers and, and newcomers alike. And wherever mining men gathered, if you mentioned Shorty Harris' name, they would go, huh, that reminds me of a story. <laughs> and they, whether it was true or not, there would be a bunch of laughter, sometimes derision. But usually it was with fondness. It didn't hurt that every time he was up and up in the money, he would buy everybody drinks and spend his money on other people. And he had a reputation also for striking rich at Death Valley. He was part of three major strikes at Death Valley, which got everyone else rich. There was like two in 1904 and one in 1905. And he had two claims in Colorado before he even uh, went out to Death Valley. But he never held on to his riches he would always sell the claims he wouldn't work them and, and then he'd drink and spend all the money in short order. in the case of his first strike which was in uh, bullfrog which he named because in the the, the uh, it looked green in the little uh, um, bunch of gold that he had the speckles and stuff, he gambled it away. <laughs> I think within the first week, to this guy named J.W. McLaren. And he became the partner then in the mine. He never seemed to bother him, though. He was, uh, you just go out and find another mine. That's what he thought. And looking was the best part for him. Always from the beginning. Later on in life, someone asked him, if you could choose in order to live your life over again, would you pick prospecting? And he goes, I wouldn't change places with the President of the United States. My only regret is I didn't start sooner. When I go out, every time my foot touches the ground, I think before the sun goes down, I'm going to worth $10 million. And the guy says, yeah, but you don't get it <laughs> when you go out. And he goes, who the hell wants $10 million? It's the game, man. It's the game. <laughs> but he was a hard worker, too. He, I mean, he... Crisscross Death Valley. He knew how to prospect, and he would look and and you know some. So he was
0: a bit of a geologist, obviously. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well he'd done the mining before, so he learned yeah. his trade before he got there. And uh, he would be with the burro with just a small amount of gear out in the heat and the cold, but he could also be a drinker and a gambler, especially when he was up in the chips, and uh, and it would usually get him into trouble. Once in the mining town of Ballarat we got back to Ballard again. Yeah. Shorty went there for the Fourth of July celebration. Yeah. <laughs> there was another time. And eventually he passed out in the corner in this saloon there. It was called Chriswick Saloon. And his buddies took advantage of this and said, let's play a trick on him. So they built the coffin quick out of lumber, set it on a pool table, put him inside and put candles around it. And when he started stirring... They started going, oh, Shorty, we're so sad. He was such a great guy. They gave him a little eulogy. (laughs) And then at one point, they pick up the coffin. They start carrying it out to the graveyard. Well, Scotty got scared as hell. He jumped out of the coffin and ran out drunk into the woods. And I don't know if he came back later and got his gear, but they said he didn't come back for months (laughs) to the place. And uh, anyway, that that's the best drunk story I have from him. Harris was born near Providence, Rhode Island. It was on July 2nd of 1856. But his parents died when he was about six. And he went to live with an aunt, which he didn't care for. So at nine, he ran off and he worked in a textile mill. He was um, um, dying calico there. And he said, claimed that the town priest there taught him to read and write. And that was the only schooling he had after that time period. In 1876, he rode the rails out to Kansas to Dodge City, and he worked as a stable boy. And when he was up in the money, he'd spend it just like always. He'd go out to saloon girls and take them out like it was a date. And, and one time he was out with one girl, and we're walking in the moonlight, and she says, Shory, why be a sucker? Why don't you go out to Leadville? You might find a claim because there was a big mining strike in Leadville, Colorado. He goes, I broke. I don't got enough money for that. She goes, well, I got some. And she took a wad of bills out. Goes, hey, I'm not that kind of take stuff. She said, no, take it. So that was his first scrub stake. <laughs> so he headed out. And sure as shit, with dumb luck, he finds uh, gold there. And he proceeds to sell the claim for 15000 bucks, and then drinks in 15, 15000 yeah. And he manages to lose it all. I don't know how long it took him that time. but There's it was a lot gone. of claim.
0: He sold the other claim for fifteen thousand too. He's I like, think that's a
2: standard thing. And uh, so everyone else was kind of feeling bad for him. He goes, no, I'll just go out and find another one. He's too dumb to realize, but he did. He found another claim found out several. there. This time, when he sold it, 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 he remembered the lady, and he went back to Dodge City. Oh, he paid her. And he gave money back, and he took her out to dinner, bought her clothes, did all the stuff apparently he bought everyone in town clothes and everything else because in a couple of weeks it was all gone. Oh man. And then he asked her to marry her and for some reason she said no. <laughs> so anyway, he was brokenhearted uh but he rode the rails off into Arizona where he made his way out to Tombstone. And this time he had to work. <laughs> he prospected a little but he couldn't he couldn't he wasn't so lucky there. And so he had to work in the mines there. And eventually, he thought, "I'm going to leave here." So he worked his way up to New Mexico, and he got his way up to Idaho, where he worked in a bunch of mines. There again, he was a laborer in the mines. This was about in 1898. And uh, then there was a strike at the mine, and so he's like, "I'm not going to go ahead and strike." He, so he lost his job there. So he was heading down to go back to Arizona, but he got into Utah somehow, and he was almost dying. And this is the story he tells, which you can see from the story that maybe it's true. Who knows? He said he was coming along, and he happened to see a camel drinking water, and he thought, well, there can't be any camels here. So this is a mirage. So he didn't stop for the water, and he kept going, and finally he collapsed, and someone found him. And he told the guy later, I was so crazy, I saw a camel out there. He goes, you idiot. That is a camel out there. One of the guys had it for the troops. And he let it loose and it's running wild out there. He could have had water way back then. So anyway, Shorty claimed that he met a Mormon uh, <clears throat> a bishop who had some kind of knowledge or some kind of claim down to the panamints in Death Valley. Okay. And he wanted Shorty to go down there and put some markers on it. And that's how he got down to Death Valley. When he got there, he found out somebody else had him. There's no way to claim this stuff. So he stayed there and he started prospecting. And uh, that's where his prospecting career started there. When he wasn't prospecting, he was always looking for uh, a grub stake <laughs> so he could go out and prospect again. And he, he used to say, "It's you know, when you're prospecting, you know, your, your grub stake is where you find it. One time he was in the town of Pinoach in Nevada. And he had no money. Then he heard about a job on this ranch. So he went out to the ranch. And the lady who was running the place said, we don't have any. I don't have a job. That was just a rumor or something. Like, oh, he must have looked terrible. said, oh, well, I got these bag of kittens I need killed. For <laughs> a dollar, you can do it. And goes. So he took the dollar and he's like, I'm just going to let these cats go. I'm not going to kill them. So he's going along the road. And somebody gives him a lift, a wagon. And the guy goes, what do you got in the bag? Oh, I got kittens. The guy goes, wow, I was up in Idaho at this mine. And I could sell cats for $10 a piece because, you know, they because the rat problem and everything. He thought, oh, my gosh, Pinoch has a lot of mice. So he went up there and he started selling his kittens. I don't know how much he got for them. And one guy didn't have money. He's kind of drunk. He took advantage of this guy. The guy's always drunk. He says, I don't have any money, but I got a goat. <laughs> He goes, oh, and then he knew somebody wanted a goat. So he traded the kitten for a goat, takes the goat to this other guy. That guy is he's a guy named Pete, and he was drunk, sort of, gave him 50 bucks for the goat. And so Shorty thought he made out. And then a couple days later, this guy comes, knocks on his door and gives him another 50 bucks. He goes, what are you, what's this for? Oh, you got to come see this. He comes back to the goat. The goat's drunk and can pull a cork out of a thing when it wants to drink. <laughs> Did you have him give him more hoochie? He says, I believe this is my dead ex-partner and he's come back as a goat to me. And I'm so happy to see him again. Then he gives Shorty another 50 bucks. So he goes, see? You never know when you get your next grubstick. stick. In his old age, Shorty lived mostly in Ballarat and in an adobe shack. And this is when the the population rose up again. There was another little bar and there was him and it was seldom seen slim was still living there right. but he was one of the few people living there and he still prospected around the place but he had less energy and eventually his health deteriorated he had three major operations but he still kept going and he lived in ballarat with his blind burrow and in 1933 he was buried partially by when the adobe wall of his of his cabin collapsed on him and it cracked his ribs <laughs> And he laid there for 60 hours before someone found him. And he had pneumonia. And a doctor came clear from Trona and said, you know, they put him up in a bed and stuff. We can't move him. So they thought, well, we're going to have to plan his funeral. So they started getting his funeral ready and everything. And the next day, he's like up and around going, hey, talking about how I'm losing $10 million a day. i got to go out and start prospecting. So, no, stay there. So as soon as he could be moved, he had friends in, in Lone Pine. They took him out there. They nursed him back. And then they brought him back to Ballarat. So then he would go out mostly with people, you know, accompanied. He wouldn't go out by himself anymore. Yeah and on one of these trips they were driving in a car this time out into death valley across the the valley floor in the middle of nowhere and they passed by jim dayton's grave which is you know hugs towards the Panamint, but in the middle of nowhere and he had been a prospector and he worked for the borax works and he was a well-loved guy even though it said that when he was buried the guy that buried him out there because he died of thirst when he was going across the desert no. with the, these mules. And something happened bad and got hung up and he ended up dying. So they found him and they buried him on the spot. And the guy burying him said, uh, uh, in effect, you know, uh, Jim, you lived uh, through the heat and the misery. Now that you're dead, you probably used to hell. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> so anyway, but Shorty prospected him... When he first got there so he was like he you know, had a special affection for him and he told the guys who was driving him stop by the grave so he got out and he laid some blue wildflowers there and he goes god bless you old fella you'll soon have to move over and make room for me and then he told the guy that was with him you know when i die i want you to bury me next to old jim and then right above my grave here lies shorty harris a single blanket jackass prospector which means a cheap one yeah. <laughs> they didn't have much and unfortunately in November of 1934, Shorty Harris did die and it was in his sleep in the town of Big Pine. And they decided to honor his wishes and they could to bury him there. And on the day of his funeral, 300 people gathered at Furnace Creek to await the uh, limo with his uh, uh, coffin to take him all the way the 200 miles out to, from Big Pine to Death Valley. And all along the way, they would stop for all the old prospectors of people that know him (laughs) to pay their respects. And they brought him in. And the people there was made up of people as far away as L.A., but mostly all the people that knew him. And then like 150 of them were the CCC workers out there (laughs) working on the monument. And it was a simple service. And they lowered him into the grave and buried him. And they put uh, a wreath of Athol and Desert Holly and then it took till 1936, but in 1936, a monument was put on his grave with the words he wanted to, ha- to have there. And it's still there. You could drive out and see it if you go out there, um, you know, on the valley floor and drive on that dirt road because you have to, <laughs> it's not on the main road. You have to cut across by all the different canyons up there, and it's still there by the uh, Eagle Borax. Well, there you have it. There's number one, but there are a lot more characters who roamed the mountains and the salt flats and the sand dunes of Death Valley. There was Copperstain Joe, Old Whiskers, Bill Dooley, Archie McDermott, Patsy Clark, Borak Smith, Indian George, etc. A bunch of people. All called the area their home. And, uh, and we just brought out the highlights for you right now. So if you ever get a chance to go take a trip to Death Valley, you should do it. In go the winter. St- <laughs> yes. <laughs> go see The Natural Wonders. Maybe take a visit to Scotty's castle or Shorty Harris's grave.
0: It's not open till 2020.
2: Oh, yes, that's true. But as James points out, don't go in the summer.
5: Those Death Valley days Lay in my mind, as I'm trying to find a way back to a place I knew when I was only a kid. When a car trip with my parents and my sister really seemed like a great adventure, we had a cheap mountain. On our way to Stokebine was I went running the doom
6: monsters do have their place in the zoo, in your nightmares, in the deep, in your favorite horror movies, but not in your living room, on your TV. Don't let pay TV be the monster in your living room. Pay TV and cable TV companies are seeking the right to charge you for the very programs you now get free. If you want to stop Pay TV and save free television, sign the petition in the lobby of this theater. Let your lawmakers know how you feel in the fight against Pay TV and cable TV.
0: And now a performance by Jim Turner and his handsaw.
7: Adamnan, who wrote his life in the next century, that's about the fourth century, um, he came up from Iona with a few of his monks, and they came up the chain of locks Loch Oich, Lach Loch Locky, on his way to convert the king of the Picts, the northern Picts, King Brood. Adamnan recounts that at the end of Loch Ness, where the Ness flows into the sea, they just come up. And they're going to cross the Ness, and a man was swimming across the river, and this great serpent thing, a beast, appeared. And St. Damon says the holy man, <clears throat> the great sign of the cross, and a loud voice, drove it off, so that it didn't do any harm to him. Well, we don't know how much truth of that is in that, but that's the first uh, first uh, account we have of this of this strange thing that's in the law. Friend up from London, and um, we were standing on the edge of the lock on the stone jetty, looking across the bay on the right. And we were suddenly surprised. There were no bo- first of all, there were no boats visible at all. Suddenly, noticed a tremendous commotion in the bay and we couldn't see what was causing this at first. And then we were fairly staggered to see, a little further on, a huge neck emerge. We both agreed about seven feet at least above the water at a slight angle, moving along slowly for about 17 seconds, we estimated, and then it went down. We didn't see any of the body, but this huge this height out of the water was was extraordinary. In fact, this organist said to me, he said, if I hadn't been there, it'd have felt like running. It gave him such a clear feeling.
8: Mm. About halfway between Fort Augustus and here, we saw something in the water. We thought it was a boat in difficulties. We rushed down, and we got the edge of the water. We saw these two fins about twenty feet apart about four feet out of the water, I would say, traveling towards Inver Morrison. stayed up for five or six seconds, uh, submerged, came back up again, and stayed up for another 10 seconds, then submerged finally and didn't come back up again. Now, the water was quite calm at the time, but when things submerged, and finally there was a terrific wash came onto the shore.
6: Well, during my working life, we were responsible for the preservation of the salmon stocks in these areas. Glen Morrison, Glengarry, Loch Ness and all the other adjacent, adjoining rivers. That was a main job. Then there was the hatchery work. I was expecting a run of fresh salmon. Suddenly there was a most terrific upsurge of water. Then the long Tapering neck, small head which was turning very oh, I should say scared looking, and a huge humped body, which I estimated at 30 feet long. I just, and I shut my eyes three times to make quite sure that I wasn't seeing something that I, you know, that didn't exist. However, then I heard the noise of the engine of two fishing trawlers that had just come out from the canal blocks and were heading for Loch Ness. I said to myself, oh this is going to be interesting and meanwhile the head was even more excited you see the animal. I said to myself, this is going to be very exciting because as soon as the bow, the first trawler comes within my line of vision it will also come within the animal's line of vision. Well, that duly happened, and as soon as the first dollar appeared, oh, a terrific spl- plunge into the depths. That surge was fantastic.
9: I'd been up that particular morning for about five o'clock watching the lock. When Mrs. Pickett finally came out to wash breakfast dishes about nine o'clock, I strolled over to have a word with her. Um, I left my camera behind me and I walked about 50 yards to Chapman. I turned and uh, looked across the lock. Well, actually I looked over Mrs. Pickett's shoulder to a point about a quarter of a mile to the left of the Glandern Hotel, across that side. And I saw this huge black mass It undulated into three humps proceeding from right to left it was going at a fair speed and the water was swirling up from the front of it in a big white wash. And I said to Mrs. Pickett, can you see that? She said she could. I said, well, watch it while I get the camera. And I rushed and grabbed the camera and immediately a voice shouted after me, oh it's gone down. Well I put up a binoculars on the spot and there was a huge whirlpool as though something had submerged into the lock. A huge patch about 50 yards across.
8: Well, uh, the first and only time uh, was in, uh, I believe, 1972, in June, near the summer solstice. Uh, we were with uh, Wing Commander Carey and his wife, my wife. It was, uh, I think we were having coffee at their house, nothing stronger. And indeed, uh, Basil Carey said, I, I say that, uh, that doesn't look like an upturned boat. Out we rushed uh, to the, the embankment uh, near their house, and we looked down in the middle of Urquhart Bay, and there, though it is... Oh, 10, 10.30 in the evening, it was still quite light. There was a slight rain, but we unmistakably saw a a giant hump in the water, move slowly out in the bay, turn around and come back, and then submerge. Uh, We had some telescopes, and we took turns, uh, not talking to each other, but looking through the telescopes and and deliberately taking measurements with a 53-foot fishing vessel that was there. After all this was over, I went into the Carrie's kitchen and taped what I had seen, the dimensions I thought I had seen, and then I individually taped them, and we were in unanimous view that uh, we had seen some 22 feet of back of something that intellectually to each of us that couldn't be anything other than a big animal, and about four to six feet out of the water at the ape.
6: door for a few minutes and don't let anyone in without the password
7: all right what is it
6: Swordfish is the password
7: do you understand okay i got it well what is it password swordfish swordfish right the swordfish the swordfish they uh, some muscles in the room of who are you i'm fine thanks who are you i'm fine too but you can't come in unless you give the password no what is the password oh no you gotta tell me hey i tell what i do i give you three guesses it's the name of a fish. Is it Mary? Ha <laughs> ha! That's an old fish. She isn't what she drinks like one. Let me see. Is it sturgeon? Eh, hey, you are crazy. Sturgeon, he's a doctor who cuts you open when you're sick. Now, I give you one more chance. I got it. Haddock. That's a funny. I got a haddock too. What do you take for a haddock? Well, now, sometimes I take aspirin, or sometimes I take a calomel. Say, I'd walk a mile for a calomel. You mean chocolate calomel. I like that too, but you know, guess it. Hey, what's the matter? You don't understand English? You can't come in here unless you say swordfish. Now, I'll give you one more guess. Swordfish. Swordfish. I think I got it. Is it swordfish? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. you guess it. Pretty good, huh? Eh? Yeah, fine. you guess it. What do you want? I want to come in. What's the password? Oh, you're not fool of me. <laughs> swordfish. No, I got tired of that. I changed it. First! Call Reinhard and Reinhardt, custom tailors, and have them send up everything they've got in their shop. Single-breast, three-button, narrow lapels, medium-grade, a dark blue, size 39 regular. Next, call Plesky the haberdasher. I want to see some shirts. Broadcloth, plain or tab collar, size 15.5, uh, 34. Shorts, nylon or cotton, size 32. Socks, French lilac, dark tone, size 11.5. Ties, not too wide, not too narrow, not too fancy. Also pajamas, handkerchiefs, couplings, suspenders, etc., etc. Next, call Holsteaders. Have them deliver some shoes, British or Italian models, brown and black, size 9B. Yes, Fritz. No, Fritz, I need you. Sleepy or not
3: sleepy, everybody works today.
10: What's this? A piece of toast? A pretzel stick? Popcorn? What blockhead cooked all this? What kind of a Thanksgiving dinner is this? Where's the turkey, Chuck? Don't you know anything about Thanksgiving dinners? Where's the mashed potatoes? Where's the cranberry sauce? Where's the pumpkin pie? You were kind of rough on Charlie Brown, weren't you, sir? Rough? Look at this! Is this what you call a Thanksgiving Day dinner? Did we come across town for this? We were supposed to be served a real Thanksgiving dinner! Now, wait a minute, sir. Did he invite you here to dinner? Or did you invite yourself and us, too? Gee, I never thought of it like that. Do you think I hurt old Chuck's feelings? I bet I hurt his feelings, huh? Golly, why can't I act right outside of a baseball game? Marcy, maybe you can go to old Chuck and patch things up for me. Maybe you can tell him how I really feel. Tell him that I didn't mean it the way it sounded. Marcy, you can do it. You go see him and tell him that I really like him and that the dinner is okay with me. Well, I don't know, but I'll try. I think maybe you should go to Chuck and tell him yourself. No, Marcy. I'll just ruin everything. You know I'm too brusque and rough. You go and speak for me. Well, okay. This is not unlike another famous Thanksgiving episode. Do you remember the story of John Alden and Priscilla Mullins and Captain Miles Standish? This isn't like that one at all. Call me thankful.
11: writing this under an appreciable mental strain since by tonight i shall be no more penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable i can bear the torture no longer and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below do not think for my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was Supercargo fell a victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the opening forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed were the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could always guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude, I knew nothing and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting for either some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable island. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish, and of other, less describable things, which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing, and nothing inside save a vast reach of black slime. Yet, the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from the sky, which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours, I sat thinking, or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for travelling purposes in a short time. That night, I slept but little, and the next day, I made myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. (sighs) The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped and on the following day still traveled towards the hummock, though the object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. (sighs) Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night. But ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to get sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy, indeed i now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset picking up my pack i started for the crest of the eminence i have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was the source of vague horror to me but i think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illuminate. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of Paradise Lost, and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, while after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone I soon reassured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express. For despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and, perhaps, the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near Zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, and almost lapping at my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols, such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things, which are unknown to the modern world, in whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water, on account of their enormous size, were an array of bar reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a Doré. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men. Though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto. Or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms, I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me. makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a poe or Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Certainly enough, they seem to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself. (laughs) I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe. (laughs) some tribe whose last descent had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel below me. Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the Thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus-like and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic, scaly arms. The while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I... I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in the ocean. In my delirium, I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist, and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god. But soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has only given transient surcease and has drawn me into its clutches as a helpless slave. So now I am to end it all. ...having written a full account of the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not have all been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever... ...as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply... I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny war exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I, I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It... It shall not find me. God, that, that hand. The window. The window.
2: Well, that's it for another great podcast. Frank, what do we got for the one last thing? John Philip Sousa, the composer and conductor of marches, but also operettas, was born on November 6th. Everyone knows his stars and stripes forever, But most people can also recognize many of his other works, even though they might not know that he produced them. So in his honor, and to round out the show, we have some clips from his works. So this is Uncle Frank, and this is Jimmy Sweets. We'll see you next month.